Well, good morning. Good morning, good morning, good morning. My name is James Fields. I serve here as the lead pastor at Sojourn Church Carlisle, and it's indeed a great privilege and honor um, to welcome you to this Sunday um, to worship with us. We'll be continuing in our Advent series, looking at the rumors of the Messiah, and we'll be looking at a very familiar passage from Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 through 4. So would you remain standing with me as we read God's word, as I read God's word over you this morning? Listen to the word of Christ spoken in Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 4. It says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of our God's vengeance, to comfort all who mourn in Zion, to give them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, festive oil instead of mourning, and splendid clothes instead of despair. And they will be called oaks of righteousness or righteous trees planted by the Lord to glorify him." They will rebuild the ancient ruins. They will restore the former devastations. They will renew the renewed cities, the devastations of many generations. You may be seated. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Well, congratulations, church family. Um, You've made it. By God's grace, you've made it to the final Sunday of 2021. And what a year it has been, too, hasn't it? Listen to how um, there are many commentators that have shared kind of an overview or description of this past year. But listen to uh, Carl Vick, writer of the Time magazine, as he describes 2021. He says, he describes it this way. He says, it was a lurching, stammering year that began in hope, flirted with whiplash, and shuddered to a halt. In 2001, miraculously, miraculously, effective vaccines showed up. A new president promised unity, and a jury convicted a man who killed George Floyd. It was also the year that supporters of the losing candidate took over the U.S. Capitol. Asians Americans were giving a new reason to fear for their lives, and COVID-19 killed Americans at a faster rate than ever before. Uh, excuse me, than before free, life-preserving infections. Uh, injections were available across the land. Is it any wonder that from Naomi Osaka to Simone Biles, the deliberate preservation of mental health and resilience was a major theme of this year? You know, I'm an optimist by nature. I really try to see things from a positive perspective, um, often to a fault. Um, I try to see life as half full rather than half empty. But you know, I also have to admit that um, this year has brought some new appreciation to my life as well as some new perspective. The question remains, even as we again celebrate and are thanking God for this last Sunday in 2021, with so much ambiguity and so much unknownness within our world today, how can we trust that God's promises will remain true? How can we trust that God's promises will remain true. Think about it with me. Yes, we have somewhat successfully gone through this global pandemic, but now there's a new COVID variant called Omicron that is now rising up and taking hold within our country and even our world. 
There's political upheaval. There's religious wars. There is climate change. So how can we be assured? How can we be assured of God's continued protection over us as his people in 2022? Now, we want to look at Isaiah 61 verses 1 and 2 for the answers. But before I give you the answer, let me give you the thesis. The thesis is simply this. We can be assured of God's protection because of God's provision of Jesus. We can be assured of God's protection because of God's provision of Jesus. Look at verses 1 and 2 in Isaiah 61 with me. It says this. It says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord God has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the hearers. Notice with me this first clause, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, especially looking at this last part, is on me. You see, Jesus announced the beginning of his ministry with these words. In Luke chapter 4, he actually goes, Luke records it this way in Luke chapter 4 about Jesus speaking these words about himself and beginning his ministry. He says this, he says, he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as usual, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. He read the scroll of the prophet Isaiah that was given to him and he unscrolled the roll and he found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to set free the oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The Bible goes on to record that then Jesus rolled up the scroll. He gave it back to the attendant and then he sat down. It says the eyes of everyone on the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began by saying to them, today, as you have listened, this scripture has been fulfilled. Now notice with me, Jesus goes to his hometown, Nazareth. He goes and does what he customary does is normally rabbis allow certain people in the village or in the town to read scripture for the people. The scroll of Isaiah is given to Jesus and Jesus purposefully, intentionally goes to this very passage of Isaiah 61 and he reads it upon the people. And then it says he sat down. This is a very important note that he set down because normally for in the rabbi tradition, the teacher isn't teaching as I am when you're standing up. The teacher actually starts teaching when he sits down. So Jesus reads these words. He sits down. And as everyone's eyes is fixed upon him, he says to them, today, as you listen, the scripture has been fulfilled. You see the power of that moment? You hear the power of Jesus? I love this because, again, Isaiah 61 says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me. This, this word of the Lord is from the Hebrew, uh, meaning Adonai Yahweh, which means sovereign Lord. And this isn't just any way in which a person would identify themselves. Only God would identify himself with this name of being sovereign Lord. So what does this reveal and why is it important? 
This word Adonai Yahweh, the same word that Jesus used to reveal himself in Isaiah 61, this is a unique name of the covenant keeping and establishment of God. This is the distinct title that God has used throughout the centuries when he made, co- he made countless covenants with individuals throughout the Old Testament. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, and yes, even Isaiah himself. And what Jesus is saying by quoting these words is not just saying, I am someone who is like God. He is saying, I am God in the flesh. Notice with me the Trinitarian language of this clause. The spirit of the Lord is on me. Notice the spirit of the Lord is on a person. This Trinitarian language speaks of God eternally existing as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each is fully God, and yet there is only one God. I know that blows your mind. It blows my mind too. There's no calculating math of the mind that can figure it out. But this is how God has chosen to reveal himself. Notice with me that the eternal, what the eternal trinity is not. The eternal trinity is not three persons and three gods. The eternal trinity is not one person and three gods. It's not one person and one God. The eternal trinity consists of three persons and yet being consisting of one God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost, as the old black preachers like to say in the South. So why? Why was the Spirit of God uniquely paced upon Jesus? What's so unique about him? Look with me in verse 1. It says, because the Lord has anointed me. The Lord has anointed me. Notice with me that he is anointed by the Spirit of God. You see, in the Old Testament, oil was often poured on the heads of office bearers. High priests and prophets and kings would often be anointed with oil. And the anointing implied a special calling from God. It dictated his holiness, as well as the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to carry out God's purposes over that person's life. You know, it's a good reminder for us this morning that men can anoint with oil, but only God can anoint with the Holy Spirit. Amen? You see, Jesus' anointing was unique. It was unique because Jesus is the only one who can hold all three of these positions simultaneously. Jesus is our great prophet. He is the word made flesh, according to Deuteronomy 18, Verses 14 through 22, Jesus is our great high priest. He's the sacrifice of our sins, according to Psalm 110, verses 1 through 4. And Jesus is our king. He is born king of the Jews, according to Psalm 2. Here we see that not, through, not just three different offices are being presented before us, but one person who holds all three offices simultaneously is proclaiming these excellent words that the Lord has anointed me. So what makes Jesus so unique and why should we trust him exclusively? Look with me again at verse 1. The Lord, spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted and to proclaim liberty to the captives 
and freedom to the prisoners. Notice that Jesus here is not only anointed by God, he is also sent by God. This is what theologians talk about, the economy of the Trinity. What this is talking about is not financial status of something, but it rather is the ordering of activities. It is the different ways that the three persons of the Trinity act as they relate to the world and as they relate to one another throughout all of eternity. Again, it's called the economy of the Trinity. Notice with me. They are of the same substance. They are all equal, but yet they have differing roles and responsibilities. In creation, God spoke the world into existence. He spoke the whole universe into being. Yet you also see Jesus carrying out God's creative decrees. As John 1, 3 says it, says these things about Jesus, says all things were made through him and without him was nothing, was anything made that was made. So if God was the one who spoke the universe into being and Jesus was the one who was carrying out God's creative decrees, where was the Holy Spirit in creation? Look with me in Genesis 1 and 2. It says, now the earth was formless and empty, darkness covered the face of the watery depths, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Here we see this active, this active um, the activity of the Trinity through the, what we theologians often call the economy of the Trinity. We see the Holy Spirit was moving and hovering over the face of the waters. He was sustaining and manifesting God's immediate presence within his creation. And by God's grace, he's still doing that even today. Amen. Not only in creation do we see this economy of the Trinity. Look at redemption. Look at redemption. God had planned from eternity past the redemption for his people by sending Jesus. Jesus, he accomplished our redemption by dying on a wooden cross and resurrecting from a borrowed tomb. And the Holy Spirit was sent to apply redemption to us, to be a comforter, to be our strength, to give us a new spiritual life, to sanctify us and to empower us for service. So what has Jesus been charged to as the anointed Messiah? Jesus is the one who has uniquely the Holy Spirit has, God has placed the Holy Spirit upon him. Jesus is the one whom God has sent. So what is the decrees? What is the uh, activities that Jesus must do? Look with me in verses one through three for the answer. He says this, I have been sent to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of our God's vengeance, to comfort all who mourn in Zion, to give them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, festive oil instead of mourning, and splendid clothes instead of despair. And they will be called righteous trees or oaks of righteousness planted by the Lord to glorify him. Notice with me here the sixfold purpose of the Messiah's anointing. The sixfold purpose of the, of the Messiah's anointing. 
So what was Jesus tasked to do or to accomplish? Notice with me, number one, he was tasked to preach or to evangelize to the poor. Now, I love this because in this context, what Isaiah is talking about is deliverance from Babylon, from the deliverance from captivity. But as people who have seen both the Old and New Testament, we realize that this is not just talking about deliverance from Babylon, but it's talking about the good news and the proclamation of the good news of the Messiah. I love how he says this. He is to preach to the poor. This is not talking about the financial destitute of our society. It's not talking about the economically oppressed of our world. What this poorness is talking about is talking about spiritual bankruptcy. It is talking about spiritual bankruptcy, and it's the opposite of self-sufficiency. Jesus is saying, I have come to preach. I have come to proclaim. I have come to share the good news of my death, burial, resurrection. I have come to those who are spiritual bankrupt and who realize that they can't live life without me because I am all that life entails. So glad that Jesus has come to preach to the poor. So glad that Jesus has come to preach to the poor. So glad that God's word has constantly told us time and time again that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. As we enter into 2022, I invite you, if you haven't already, to put on a countenance of humility before our God. To not go into 2022 with an attitude of entitlement. To not go into 2022 with an attitude of self-sufficiency. But to enter into the new year with an appreciation for God and and his son whom he has sent for the full redemption of our lives. Not only was Jesus sent to preach, he was also sent to heal. He says to verse 1, I have been sent not just to preach or to evangelize to the poor. I have been sent to heal the brokenhearted. It's a good reminder for us this morning that your brokenheartedness matters to our God. Your brokenheartedness. Listen, listen 2021 has not been roses for all of us. We're entering into this new year with scars and with pain and maybe even sorrow. Maybe we've lost a loved one or maybe the year financially has taken a really big hit on us that no one knows except ourselves. And here Jesus is saying, I have come not only to preach to the poor, those who are spiritual bankrupt, but I've come to be near to the brokenhearted. I love this because it reminds us again of a good way in which we can be honest before God and honest before one another. That listen, if you are brokenhearted today, listen, if you are feeling, if you feel like you are broken under the weight of not getting or not having the things maybe that you desire or the loss of loved ones, listen, your concerns 
our concern of our Savior. He's come to preach. He's come to heal. Notice with me, he's also come to proclaim liberty to the captives, to preach freedom to the prisoners. Love this because, again, here he is coming to preach to those who are living in darkness, who are captivated to the kingdom of darkness. And notice the outcome of the proclamation of the gospel. Prisoners are released from darkness. Yes, I pray that you have a great 2020, a 2022 year. I do pray that. But you know what I pray even more? I pray that the gospel will be on our lips. I pray that the gospel message will be in our hearts and we would be willing, will, willful sharers of the good news of Jesus. That we won't withhold the message that God has given us and commanded us to share. That our hearts would grow, not just to provide food, not just to provide shelter, not just to provide money or gifts, but to provide the message of Jesus being our King and our God and the Savior of the world. He's also not just come to preach, to heal, to proclaim. He's also come to proclaim. Notice with me, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of our God's vengeance. You know, all of these three things, I love this one probably the most because here it reminds us of the, of the year of the Jubilee. The year of the Jubilee is actually um, found in Leviticus chapter 25. If you want to go there and kind of look at it. But to kind of give a, a quick synopsis of what this means is that God has always called his people to a time of rest. Call it, he calls it a Sabbath, a Sabbath year. And every seven years, God will call his people to a certain rest to be able to rest in his presence and rest in his provision. And when those seven years multiply up to seven years or 49 years, on the 50th year, God will command his people a special year called the year of Jubilee. It was a year of reorder and it was a year of restoration. It was a year in which God will allow those who have maybe lost certain possessions even in their own life, maybe through bad decisions or through financial hardship to be restored and reclaimed back to their prior position. It was a year that God called his people to rest in the promise, the presence and provision of him being their God. I love this because it reminds us of the full gospel of Christ. One pastor puts it this, one theologian puts it this way. He says, salvation is as if I have never sinned and also as if I have always obeyed. This is the synopsis of what it means to have salvation or to be saved by Jesus. It, it means that God looks at you as if you have never sinned, as if you have never erred before his sight. But he also looks at you, not just as if you never made a mistake, he also looks at you as if you've always obeyed him. I love this because it reminds us of proclaiming the full gospel of Christ, not just forgiveness of sins, but justification of those sins. Not just confession, but sanctification. Not just heaven, but glorification. 
Not just atonement, but also obedience. Not just mercy, but also grace. This is what God has called us to, and this is what he is calling us to and reminding us of in regards to the sixfold purposes of the Messiah's anointing. Why was he anointed? He was anointed to preach and proclaim, um, to preach to the poor, to heal the broken hardened, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to provide freedom to the prisoners. He was also anointed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of God's vengeance. But notice with me, we still have two more to look at. Verse three says it this way. It says, Jesus was also anointed in order to comfort all who mourn. He was anointed to comfort all who mourn. Notice with me that God has promised to comfort all those who mourn. Now, someone may be looking at me this morning, maybe cross-eyed, and maybe that puts a distaste in your mouth. And you're thinking this, um, this can't be true, Pastor Fields. I mean, if this is true, then why am I still mourning? Why am I still in a season of mourning? If God has come to comfort all those who mourn, why hasn't he stopped by my residence? Notice with me. What God doesn't provide now, beloved, he will provide in eternity. Listen to me. What he doesn't provide now, he will provide in eternity. I love how Psalm 35 verse 5 puts it. It says, weeping may endure through the night, but joy will come in the morning. You see, all causes of sorrow will eventually be removed. They will be restored. This Bible actually records that God keeps account of the tears that actually fall from your eyes. The Bible records in Revelation that God will be the one who will wipe every tear from our eyes. Why would there be tears? Well, because there has been pain and there's been sorrow. There has been strife. There has been struggle. But until that day, until that day when God makes everything right before the presence of his son, until that day, comfort is needed. And the way that God provides that comfort is through his church. It's through those who proclaim and live and surrender and submit to the lordship of Jesus. Notice what Isaiah 57 says about this. It says this, these words, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the hearts of the contrite. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry. For the spirit would grow faint before me in the breath of life that I made. I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and with mourners, creating the fruit of the lips." Peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. Love this last part. So the sixfold purpose of the Messiah, he's come to preach, he's come to heal, 
He's come to proclaim liberty to the captives. He's come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, that being the year of the Jubilee. He's come to comfort all those who mourn. And look with me in verse 3. He's also come bearing gifts. He comes to give. He says, to give them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, festive oil instead of mourning, and splendid clothes instead of despair. Now notice with me the reversal of fortunes. This is from suffering to restoration. And listen, let me be very clear about this. I'm not talking about the prosperity gospel here. I'm not talking about you believing in Jesus and magically you will have fortunes and riches more so than you can count or understand. I'm not talking about that. But what I am talking about is the prosperity of the gospel. What I'm talking about is Matthew chapter 20, verse 16, where it says, the first shall be last and the, and the last shall be first, for, for many are called, but few are chosen. It's a good reminder of us what we talk about often here at our church, that our identity precedes our function. In other words, who we are is so much more important than what we do before God. It means that God doesn't treat us how we deserve. That's called mercy. But he treats us according to our identity, that being sons and daughter of the most high God, that is called grace. Now try to paint this picture a little more clearly. Imagine with me. Imagine with me a father who tells his children that they have 30 minutes to clean up their rooms. And if they don't, They'll have consequences. In my house, we call those consequences or spankings, if you will, tau-taus. We got it from our Haitian friends a long time ago, so we just kind of kept it tau-taus. You say, hey, you have 30 minutes to clean up your room. Go. <laughs> and the father sends the kids away. They go, and he's hearing all this noise, all this ruck ruckus. He's hearing a lot of playing, a lot of commotion. And after the 30 minutes, he calls his children downstairs to ask them if they are finished with the assignment. And the children appear before the dad anxious and sad, and they confess that instead of allotting the time to doing what he asked them to do, they decided to play and not clean. And listen, the father is mad. He is upset. He's angry with the children's disobedience. So what does he choose to do? within this moment. The punishment has already been made clear. If you don't do this, then you will receive a punishment. Well, in his moment of anger, in his moment of angst, the dad decides to show his kids what the gospel is all about. So instead of giving him a spanking, what he decides to do is he says, listen, I'm going to give you an extra 15 minutes. <laughs> you did not do what I asked you to do, so I'm not going to give you the spanking that you deserve. I'm not going to give it to you, but this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to allow you to have a little extra time. I'm going to give you a little bit more extra time in order to get it right. But not only that, I'm going to go upstairs with you, and I'm going to help you clean a mess that you created and not me. You see, mercy is not just the withholding of something. 
Mercy is, is not getting what you deserve. These children at the time deserved a, a, a spanking. They, they, they knew the consequences of what was going to come out of that. They knew what they deserved. They knew exactly the punishment that should have been brought upon them. And mercy is withholding the punishment. It's not getting what you do deserve. But grace is much more than that. Grace is not just not getting what you don't deserve. Grace is getting, actually getting, um, it's actually not getting what you don't deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. So in this moment, what the children didn't deserve is they didn't deserve help. They didn't deserve assistance. They didn't deserve someone coming alongside them and helping them clean up a mess that they created themselves. Throughout the scriptures and throughout the Bibles, we see this aspect of God's grace and his mercy towards his people. We see often time and time again where God does not give people necessarily what they deserve. We also see throughout scripture that God also gives them what they don't deserve. And this is how God has chosen to relate to us through his son, Jesus in Jesus is the fulfillment. He is a perfect embodiment of God's grace and mercy towards us. In Jesus, we, we get what we don't deserve. We also get, we don't get what we do deserve. So what's the purpose of God's grace and mercy in our lives? Why is Jesus so gracious and merciful towards us? Look with me in. Verse 3, be with me. Verse 3, it says this, and they will be called righteous oaks, or another version puts it, oaks of righteousness, planted by the Lord to glorify him. They will be called righteous oaks. What are righteous oaks or oaks of righteousness? This is actually a reference back to Psalm 1. You may have already picked that up in our conversation and just even hearing that language. It, it, this, is a, this is an idiom that points back to Psalm chapter 1, verse 3, that talks about the blessed man. It says, that blessed man will be like a tree planted besides flowing streams that bears fruit in its season and whose leaf does not wither and whatever he does prospers. Notice with me three characteristics of this tree. Number one, notice the location of or the proximity of this tree towards water. This tree is planted by water. Those who belong to God, those who are sons and daughters of the Most High God, are grounded and productive, living and growing in his fruitful goodness and his more high moral strength. These ones who are looking to God with grace and favor, who have submitted themselves to God, the godly ones, if you will, they will be like trees planted beside flowing streams, planted by water. Number two, not only will they be planted by water, notice with me that these trees will bear fruit for others and not just for themselves. I love this because it reminds us that our success isn't simply for yourself, but our success is for the nourishment and the uplifting and equipping of others. A tree doesn't live for itself, y'all. A tree bears fruit for others. 
not just for itself. And then lastly, the tree bears fruit in its own season. I love this, right? He says, he is like a tree planted besides flowing streams that bears its fruit in its season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Love this because it reminds us that our faithfulness is not determined by our fruitfulness, but our faithfulness is always the prerequisite of our, of one's fruitfulness. Now listen, if you have been faithful following the Lord, if you have been faithfully following him and you have not seen the produce, you haven't seen the fruit that you want to see in your life, what I encourage you to do is one thing, continue to be faithful. Continue to walk with Jesus. Continue to look to him for strength. Because as Psalm 30 verse 5 says, weeping may endure for the night, but joy will come in the morning. Don't give up on God. Don't give up on being faithful to him. Don't give up on living righteously before him. Don't give up on depending upon him. Don't give up on trusting in him. I love this because Psalm 1 says that the, uh, we will be like trees planted beside flowing streams that bears its fruit in its season. And what, this, what the author is trying to remind us of with those very easy and, and very easy to understand words is he's trying to help us to see that ev- not every season is a fruit-bearing season. There are some seasons that we go through that we might not see fruit, but that doesn't mean that God isn't good to us, and that doesn't mean that God doesn't care for us. We just may be in a season where there is no fruit to be seen. But if you continue to be faithful to God, if you continue to be faithful to him and to his word, God will allow fruit to be bare in its season. So let me ask you, what season are you in right now? What season are you in right now? What season does God have you in right now? Are you longing for fruit that maybe isn't going to produce for a little bit long while, long while, after a while? Are you in the winter season earnestly desiring that it will be summer? It's important for us to realize the seasons that we are in because trees are not meant to, they're only meant to bear fruit in certain seasons. Every season is not fruit bearing season and that's okay. But notice where the tree remains. Although the tree is not bearing fruit, it's still by flowing streams. And regardless of the season, Regardless of the fruitfulness, regardless of what's going on, the tree stays planted in close proximity to its life source. The tree stays close to where it finds nourishment, where it finds strength, and where it finds sustenance. Church family, we have to stop judging people based upon fruit. 
Church family, we have to start judging people and calling people to stay close to the source. Because Psalm 1 says, a man and a woman who follows after God will be like a tree planted beside flowing streams. Didn't say that you'll be a tree that bears fruit every day of your life. It didn't say you'll be a tree that, a tree that bears fruit all the time. The most important thing about this tree is the proximity it has to the source of life. Not to the fruit that is produced. So why has God done this marvelous work? Look with me at verse four and we'll end here. It says, they will rebuild the ancient ruins. They will restore the former devastations. They will renew the renewed cities, the devastations of many generations. Notice with this term in verse four, ancient ruins. They will rebuild the ancient ruins. Now, listen, um, (laughs) there there are two quick things I want you to to take away from this sermon, okay? Number one, we need to be energetic. We as a church need to be energetic in the mission the Messiah has entrusted to us because although, yes, the spirit of the Lord is upon him, he has now granted that same spirit upon us to to fulfill the same mission and to continue the same mission that he first started, to proclaim liberty to the captives all over this world. And notice with me, notice with me where we are to proclaim this. We're not like Adam and Eve who are seeing and and experiencing God's presence in a garden. No, no, no. We're we're not seeing this in the way of the garden. We're seeing it in the way of the wilderness. We're seeing it in the way of the wilderness. And just much as as God was called, Jesus was called, um, excuse me, John the Baptist was called to prepare the way of the Lord in the wilderness, so we too are called to prepare and to proclaim the good news of Jesus, not in a garden, but in a wilderness. Listen to me, What? listen how the ESV commentary talks about this verse. It says, the poor become through Jesus or through the Messiah, creative restorers of the sad situations that man has had to live in for so long. Every human ideal falls into ruins Um, In this world of death, but the new culture of life in the city of God will thrive forever. Notice with me that Jesus' story now becomes our story. That there's a connection here. That it's not just about uh, looking to Jesus, but it's about being called and being enraptured and being involved in the very mission that Jesus has been called to be a part of. God has called us to be professional restorers of his creation. That is our mission and that is our call. God has called us to be professional restorers of his broken wilderness-like creation. Brothers and sisters, stop telling God where you're willing and not willing to work for him. 
Stop trying to set up the parameters of how you're going to work for God. Love what Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 16. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? So how can we be assured of God's continued protection in 2022? How can we be assured of God's continued provision and protection in 2022? Regardless of what 2022 might bring, we have to remember two things. Number one, you got to remember who you are. You have to remember your identity. And the Bible is clear about your identity. The Bible says that we are beloved of God, that we are blessed of the Father, that we are brothers and sisters of Christ Jesus our Lord, that we are children of Abraham, we are a chosen generation, that we are chosen ones. The Bible says that we are Christians, dear children, disciples of Christ, elect of God. We are the elect ones, the faithful ones, fellow citizens with the saints. We are friends of Christ. We are friends of God. We are the godly. We are heirs of God. We are heirs of the kingdom. We are a holy nation. We are a holy priesthood. We are joint heirs with Christ. We are the just. We are kingdom of priests. We are the light of the world. We are lively stones. We are peculiar people. We are people who are near to our God. We are the ones who are ransomed of the Lord. We are the ones who are redeemed of the Lord. We are the royal priesthood. We are the salt of the earth. We are servants of Christ. We are sojourners with God. We are sons and daughters of God. We are the Lord's free people. We are trees of righteousness. We are vessels of honor and we are vessels of mercy. And we are most importantly witnesses for God. That's who you are. But listen, you must not only remember who you are, but you also must remember who he is. Amen. Identity precedes function. Church family, remember who he is. (laughs) He is the alpha and he is omega. He is the bread of life. He is your chief cornerstone. He is the great deliverer, the faithful and true one. He is the good shepherd. He is the great I am. He is the head of the church. He is Emmanuel, which means God with us. He is the king of kings and he is the Lord of lords. He is the Messiah. He is the mighty one. He is our hope and he is our peace. He is our redeemer. redeemer. He is the risen Lord. He is our rock. He is a sacrifice for our sins. He is the savior of the world. He is the resurrection of the life. He is the door. He is the way. He is the word. He is the true vine. He is truth. He is the victorious victorious one. He is a wonderful counselor. He is a mighty God. He's the everlasting God. He is the prince of peace. Would you pray with me? Father, we do love you and thank you. And we ask, God, that as we enter into this new year of 2022, that we will remember our identity that you've called us. But, Lord, we also remember the identity that you revealed to us in Scripture. Thank you, God, for your grace and your mercy. Thank you, God, that you don't give us what we deserve and you don't withhold what we do. We don't withhold things from us because we don't deserve them. Thank you, God, that you draw near to us and you love us. Father, I pray under the sound of my voice, those who may, who know you, those who proclaim Jesus as King and Lord of their life, I pray that you would infuse in them even now 
your presence and your hope. You remind them of the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray as a church, you would grow our appetite and our capacity to share that good news, to not just live it for ourselves or believe it ourselves, but to share the good news of the gospel with all those whom we encounter. Help us, Lord, to be an even more evangelistic church this year. Help us to grow into the truths of your word. Help us, Lord, to know you as God, our Father, and our King. Father, I also pray for those who don't know you, who don't know you as a, a Savior or as a King. I pray, God, that you would allow them to acknowledge even now their sins, that we all have sinned and we all have fallen short of the glory of God that we all deserve death, a part of the atoning blood of Jesus. And I pray that you would draw those men, and men, those men and women near to you, that you allow them to see and to be reminded of the goodness of the Savior, that the atoning death of Jesus was not just a death that he did for himself, but he did for the redemption and for the ransom of this world, including them. Father, may we all find our hope in Jesus to this morning. May we all see him for who he is our God, our King, our Savior. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm James A.P. Fields, Jr., lead pastor at Sojourn Church Carlisle. Thanks for listening. We're a church that is rooted in the community of South Louisville, and we are seeking to advance the gospel of Christ in South Louisville and beyond. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support our ministry, Visit SojournChurch.com backslash Carlisle, C-A-R-L-I-S-L-E. God bless.